0: Owning pets now, keeping gratitude lists, new approaches to treating depression, topics to be discussed this morning with psychology professor Mark Wilson from Victoria University in one of our regular conversations with him. Morena, Mark. Tata Maria, Jim. In psychology today, why pets don't always make us happier. and yeah. in, in fact, they make us feel guilty about not being with them enough. We hate losing them. They presume upon our time too much in a busy life. Fifty-four studies, a review of those. Fewer than a third of them found a positive relationship between owning pets and better mental health. So, do you reckon this is the full story? Oh,
1: I, I'm intrigued by this because the fact that there are this many studies suggests that in spite of the fact that people have had trouble finding an effect, we, we desperately want to believe that pets are good for us. And certainly there's a bit of evidence from uh, randomised control trials, for example, that shows that taking pets into uh, retirement homes makes people feel better, taking animals into uh, hospices, taking animals into places where children are recuperating show, tend to show some, some positive effects. But when it just comes down to everyday pet ownership, um, generally speaking, the results have either been mixed or they generally be in the opposite direction.
0: Is this a bit like having children in the sense that they are very good for you? Well, if you never have children, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. You won't miss them. But if you do have children, they are good for you and they add purpose to your life, etc. And you mightn't, I don't know, describe that as happiness all the time, but it's important. Mm -hmm. Is it a bit like that? I suspect that you're probably right.
1: Um, in fact, I've been thinking about this a little bit myself. I mean, what we don't know from a lot of these studies, even the studies that I've been involved in, is what the people who don't have pets are doing with their time. So it may be... You know, just to make a gross generalisation that people who don't have pets, for example, maybe they're going to the movies or concerts or they're going on holiday and not having to worry about who's going to look after their pet or taking it with them. So that's one of the things that we're not potentially measuring. So maybe the fact that we're not finding a big difference between pet owners and non-owners just means that these people are filling their lives with different things.
0: It's a topic related to what you've just been doing, isn't it, or just been talking about at, at a conference? That's right. I'm I'm
1: very pleased to be back on on home soil, but I've uh, just come from four days of a social psychology and personality and individual differences conference in Australia where um, I was the only person presenting research on pets um, and my stuff was taking advantage of the New Zealand Attitudes and Values Survey uh, to follow up some research which we published in 2021 to have a look and see whether or not there might be a causal relationship between pet ownership and various indices of well-being and personality. And is there...? Yeah, I, I wanted to make you wait to uh, make you wait for the, the punchline. Um, so previously, what we've shown is that, in fact, um, uh, diagnoses of depression and anxiety tend to be more common amongst pet owners. Uh, but that research was cross-sectional, so it was based on a sort of one-off snapshot, and that could potentially mean that pet ownership makes people more depressed, or it could be that people who are depressed and anxious are more likely to get pets, potentially to compensate or offset that that sadness or worry. Um, so what we've done is to look at the data longitudinally and what that shows is not very much. Um, what the only effects that we've we found are that cat owners tend to get less sleep and dog owners, unsurprisingly, get a little bit more exercise. And that, while that doesn't uh, translate into direct health benefits, they are probably indirect health benefits, um, as hinted at in some of the previous research around things like dog owners tend to uh, feel a stronger sense of community, for example, partly because you've got to go down to the dog park. And what are you going to do while your dog's running around but talk to other people, for example?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's completely true about cat owners not getting as much sleep, I can say. from Yeah, well, I,
1: I was... I was pleased to see that (laughs) we're not the only people to have found it in in this research.
0: The suggestion in the research I was quoting is that extroverts get the most out of owning pets, introverts not so much, which seems Mm. to be at odds with what you've just said in a way. What do you think?
1: Well, I think that it could mirror some of the things that we see around, for example, social media use. So extroverted people tend to have more social media accounts. They tend to look at their social media more frequently, they tend to have more acquaintances or friends on it. And so I suspect it's kind of a rich getting richer kind of scenario. So if you're extroverted, you're more likely to get a dog, um, in part because you probably perceive that this is a good thing for you to do and it's going to bring you into contact with other people. So it could possibly be that. And certainly in our own research in New Zealand, we find that uh, cat owners tend to be a little bit more introverted and dog owners tend to be a little bit more extroverted. And then when you, if you just look at pet ownership full stop, it kind of cancels out.
0: And getting off the topic of pets, a couple of other things to discuss with you if we can. That old saying, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, that bearer is likely to be a woman. According to a study out of several universities that I saw, men are less likely than women to share negative information, while both genders share positive news similarly. Why, if that's true, Mark, why would that be? This research
1: involves looking at how comfortable people are, specifically men versus women, in self disclosing. Thing, negative things or negative experiences that they've had. And what the research shows is that women are more happy to self-disclose when they've had tough times than are men. And the argument that the researchers make is that men tend to try and present a very positive um, Uh, view of themselves while women are happier to self-disclose when things haven't gone right. And in part, that might be because men worry that it's going to make them look bad to talk about things that haven't gone well, whereas women might benefit more from the kind of support that comes from other people when they self-disclose.
0: Yeah, this research says disclosure is increasingly prevalent and permanent in the digital age. Mm. And, of course, men are doing it more, aren't they? They're, cry- mm. they're crying on screen. Sports teams inculcate that kind mm. of vulnerability where you all sit around and talk about your um, mm. life much more. What do you think the ramifications of this might be? Is it wholly a good idea? What do you reckon?
1: I suspect that it's going to be like most things. It's all things in moderation, right? Um, social media is interesting because it has increased people's willingness to share things with a, a, an invisible person on the other end, right? Um, and we know from long for decades of research that if you feel more anonymous, then you're more likely to do things, you're more disinhibited than, than, than you would be if you actually had someone in front of you. And I think that the um, online environment kind of allows people to do these things a little bit more than they have. In terms of the ramifications, well, I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. There's lots of reason to think that it's difficult to get help if things aren't going well for you, if you don't actually tell someone. The downside is that the social media environment may not be the one where you're most likely to get help.
0: No, well, that's true too. But it's not the sign of a too soft society, you know, the disappearance of the stiff Mm -hmm. upper lip.
1: No, I I certainly don't think that. Um, I mean, there's lots of... Lots of research and also um, personal and public experience to suggest that by not talking about things, they don't tend to go away. In fact, research suggests that um, suppressing negative experiences and negative emotions tends to have lots of paradoxical bounce-back effects that manifest in problematic mental distress.
0: Can I try a couple of quite technical subjects with you? Our understanding of depression is changing why, why isn't the treatment of it, asks a report in Scientific American? The gist here is that we dole out the antidepressants and standard therapies in a one size fits all way, whereas fMRI has identified different biotypes of depression. So no. we, aren't, we aren't catering for these. Can you explain that a bit more?
1: Yeah, so if we if you cast your mind back earlier on this year, Jim, you will remember that there was a quite a, a newsworthy umbrella review that took a whole bunch of research looking at a particularly popular family of antidepressants called SSRIs that seemed to suggest that there wasn't a lot of research to back up the mechanism by which we think they work, which is around changing the levels of serotonin in the brain. And this led people to question whether or not we should be prescribing uh, SSRIs when in fact we don't know whether or not a the the mechanism that we think they work by actually is the mechanism that they work by and because it's really difficult to measure levels of serotonin in the brain it may be that it's almost a placebo type effect but the reason why i mentioned that is because one of the things that came out of that conversation was a an acknowledgement that depression can may have different causes for different people so this thing this amorphous thing that we call depression may actually be a heterogeneous group of things that all manifest similarly i think one of the one of the problems here is that it's going to be really difficult to work out when a gp or a psychiatrist or a psychologist has a particular person in front of them what is what is their particular flavor of depression and fmris are not cheap
0: no. And even if there are four different or even more biotypes mm. of depression and we are one size fits all, it would be difficult to think how you would address, you've talked about GPs, they're, gee, they're busy, <laughs> um, how you would address uh, treatment.
1: That's right. So it may well be that some of these subtypes of depression do respond better um, or not at all, to things like SSRIs, which helps us be a little bit more targeted, but we still have to have treatments for the people for whom SSRIs might not work. We end up f- falling back on sort of last line of defence type things like you know, electroconvulsive therapy, for example, which in spite of what we see on television and in um, fiction, actually does, can work quite miraculously for people who do, not respond to other forms of uh, treatment.
0: Or transcranial magnetic stimulation, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Gotcha. Out of Florida Atlantic University, Mark comes a new approach to treating addiction, cravings, PTSD, and anxiety, which mm. we'd also need you to explain. It's claimed to be claimed to be more effective than the oft quoted cognitive behaviour therapy. It's called EMDR. What is it, please? And could we do it at home?
1: <laughs> um, you probably could do it at home, actually. So, um, eye movement desensitisation reprocessing um, involves Um, Effectively distracting part of the working memory, which is responsible for bringing the shutters down when people think about something really traumatic. So when we have an experience that's very traumatic, um, something really horrible happens to us, if we don't process it in the moment, partly because perhaps the shutters come down then what happens over time is that that, ex, that that traumatic experience bounces back. It comes, it intrudes into our thoughts. Every time we try to think about it, it creates you know, a really, really you know, high levels of, of distress. Um, and it can be quite difficult to treat. Um, and the way that EMDR works is, one, one, of, well, one of the ways that it works is to, um, over a period of time, Uh, prepare a client to talk about whatever the traumatic experience at the root of their distress is, um, until you get to a point where they talk about it whilst focusing on something that's distracting. So for example, in the classic case, a therapist will move their, their finger back and forth in front of the client, and the client will just focus their eyes on the finger. And this, based on some of the research I've read, is enough to distract that part of our memories that are responsible for bringing those shutters down. The person is able to describe the experience, which is basically a form of desensitization. Uh, what we know from a very long strand of research and therapy is that if people have the opportunity to talk through an experience, then they become desensitized to the emotional highs or, or lows of that experience. And the interesting thing is, and at least in some of the, in this call from Florida Atlantic, is to potentially try using it for other forms of uh, challenging behaviours like addiction, for example, and anxiety. I'm not familiar with a lot of research which suggests that it's particularly um, useful outside of PTSD, but I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to anticipate given that mental distresses tend to tend to co-occur. So I think that there's reason to think that there might be some bleed over effects. Things like phobias um, can be quite effectively self-treated by getting people to... Um, to actually uh, vocalise what is happening to them as they're looking at the spider, or it could be a a toy spider, for example. By working through vocalising these things, you can actually impact lower levels of of mental distress.
0: I can see you're a spider and you're a big black spider, uh, and I can see you (laughs) walking, and um, even just the description (laughs) of that uh, without trying to imbue it with emotion is probably a bit therapeutic. Exactly. That's a very reasonable thing to do. And, oh, you're crawling up my arm. A not-unrelated topic, just to ask you about before we go. We're often being told about the benefits of gratitude and to make gratitude lists to improve our well-being, and Oprah was a big fan of gratitude journaling to affect life changes. A well-known writer and podcaster, Andrea Askowitz, used to be a believer in this, and every day she wrote down three things she was grateful for, which I'm sure many of us have tried. And then someone broke her heart, and she got depressed, and a friend told her to study her depression, to write down the truth about herself, not pretend to be grateful. And she even wrote a non-gratitude list, and she's (laughs) writing about this now. Is this a useful message to hear, or is it a risky message? So for Christmas, you can
1: go and get your loved ones an ingratitude journal. Um, <laughs> right. So I, I I quite like, I tend to recommend um, not necessarily gratitude journaling, but to keep a, a gratitude list. I don't think we have to get regimented and keep you know, write down three things we're grateful for each day. But one of the things that a gratitude list can be useful for is to remind us when things have gone well, at times when it's a bit harder to bring those kinds of memories to mind. So we know that there is a bias in memory. So when people are depressed, they find it harder to remember good things. When people are happy, they actually find it harder to remember not so good things. In this particular case, I think that um, it's got to be genuine gratitude. If you're pretending to be grateful for something, I don't think that that's going to help. Now, in the context of something like depression, so depression has an It's an adaptation. One of the reasons why we get depressed is because it actually helps protect us from multiple knocks to our self-esteem, to our happiness, to the way that we see ourselves. And we know that people who are depressed tend to have a a more realistic view of the world. So it may well be the case that um, when you're depressed, you look at these gratitude things and you think, "Nah, that's not real, in the same way that you might do if if you're feeling in a good mood. Um, I think that being authentic and candid with yourself about whatever the experience is, is probably a good thing. But I wouldn't necessarily recommend that if something does, you know, if something decent does happen to you, no matter how sad you're feeling, I don't think you're going to lose anything. Uh, it's not going to make you feel any worse by writing down something that, to remind you that actually, in spite of the fact that you're feeling rubbish, someone picked up your your wallet when you dropped it or whatever else that 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 gratitude inspiring memory might be.
0: Good to talk with you. Thank you, as always, for your time, Mark.
1: Always a pleasure, Jim.